and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Benjamin Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. We will discuss his article, The Professional Prospectus, A Call for Effective Professional Disclosure, which was published in the Washington and Lee Law Review. So welcome to the program, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I'm delighted to have you on the show. We've we've discussed and collaborated on this this subject before, and as you know, I love this paper and uh, and idea, which is something of a uh, modest proposal in in the Swiftian sense. <laughs> you, you, you may um, have a minority opinion here. <laughs> So um so I I'm wondering if you could start by just kind of laying out the nature of the problem that you see. I mean the paper's really about sort of effectively market failures or principal agent problems in the provision of professional services to consumers. What's the problem? Yeah, so the the, the problem is essentially when you when you go to a professional uh there's this big information asymmetry gap where you just don't know uh, what you need, uh, and you have to rely on the professional to tell you that. So, so for example, uh, I took my, my check engine light uh, came on recently, and um, I took it to the uh, the dealership, and you know I don't know why the light's on. Uh, they're going to tell me why the light's on, uh, and they're going to tell me what I need to do to fix it, and. I don't have a whole lot of expertise around automotive repair, and so my ability to really doubt them or second-guess them, uh, if they tell me I have a, a misfiring carburetor, I have no idea if my 2013 car even has a carburetor. And so it, when, you, when you look at the, the market for professional services, you need a lawyer, you need a doctor, uh, you, you need a dentist. Uh, when you go meet with them and ask them, you know, what can you do? What, how can you help me with this problem? What do I do? You know, if the dentist tells you uh, you have a, a cavity or you don't have a cavity or you need this procedure or that procedure, you may just have to take it uh, because you don't necessarily know whether they're telling you the truth and you got to trust them. Right. So in your paper, you talk about this idea from the economics literature of the lemon problem. And, and I think that's really illustrative of sort of some of the sort of market issues that come up because of this information asymmetry. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it works? Oh, yeah. It's, it's this really neat idea. And uh, it came out of this paper by George Akerlof, who, who later won a Nobel Prize. Uh, I think he shared it with um, – um, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, around the, the information asymmetry problem. And so think about it this way. Imagine you got, uh, or you, you have a, uh, a pretty nice Honda Civic, and it's, it's done well by you. It hasn't had any problems. And you know you have a good Honda Civic. It's not a lemon. Um, but you want to turn around and sell it, and you go to the market, and you, you have an idea about what a quality Honda Civic is worth. But if the people who are going to buy your Honda Civic don't know whether it's a good used car or a lemon, they're, they're going to have to discount how much they're willing to offer you. So if you know your car is you know, good and the discount doesn't give you fair value for it, you, know, you, you may have to sell if you just, you just have to sell. But most people 
you know, if they have the ability not to sell at that price, will choose not to sell uh, just because they're not going to be able to get fair value for what they know it to be worth. So this means that the really good cars are going to exit the market. You know, so if your car is not a lemon, you're you're not going to unload it at a lemon price. And so it, you, if you want to buy a used car, it means that the best cars are probably not going to be available. And if, if people pull out the really good cars from that market, then you have this this another, another round of discounting that goes on. And so the, the average quality car that's going to be available goes down. And so as, as this process plays out again and again, what you end up with is a market where only the worst cars are available and you're only able to get low prices for them. Right. So I take it that like in a professional market, then it would be like the most available legal services to unsophisticated consumers are likely to also be the lowest quality legal services, for example. That That is an implication of applying the theory uh, to the, the market for legal services. I mean, the, le- the market for legal services is not is not like there's some differences between the market for legal services and the market for used cars. You know, you, you got to pass the bar exam uh, mm. in order to sell legal services. Uh, you don't have to pass the bar exam uh, or the character and fitness requirement to sell used cars. Right. Right. But so we do have like ways we try to regulate the market to ensure that legal services are high quality. Like for example, you say, you know, we have, law school, like you have to go to law school and graduate from law school in order to be a lawyer, at least in, in the state. Yeah. You got to pass the MPRE, you got to pass the bar exam. And then we have, you know, the bar has committees to, you know, do professional regulation. I mean, we both teach professional responsibility, right? I mean, why isn't that enough? Well, uh, so, so part of it is how the, the bar is you, you state bars are generally, you, they they have this licensing requirement you know on getting in but they aren't always the most reactive uh afterwards so when you when you think about how professional conduct gets policed you know usually once once you graduate and pass the bar and get admitted you know you may have a CLE obligation you may have you know to take these you know continuing legal education courses uh but unless somebody's complaining about you or there's some problem that comes to their attention, they aren't really, um, you know, aggressively supervising. There, no one from the bar comes around to inspect uh, your practice to make sure that it's up to standards. There's mm. not, uh, yeah, there's there's no, there's not a whole lot of oversight uh, once you get past that barrier to entry. And so, so one one thing that, that we don't do, which you know, I I didn't put in the paper, but it, it'd be something that could work, is you imagine uh, all you know federal court briefs, state briefs uh, that are filed by lawyers practicing in those courts. You imagine you just ran um, you know software uh, to look at them to see if you could flag any that were uh, grammatically so deficient uh, as to raise competence questions. Um, mm. you know, while I was you know clerking, uh, you know we had an opportunity to read a, a lot of briefs of varying quality uh, from mm-hmm. different lawyers, and you know, sometimes you'd see. You'd see briefs come across the wire that um, really surprised you uh, that, that a practicing lawyer would file that. I don't, I don't know. Have you have you seen similar stuff? Yeah, yeah. Actually, in particular, I saw it when I was doing pro bono work uh, at Sullivan and Cromwell, and you know there was a pro bono client who had fired his um, his public defender 
because he figured that anyone he wasn't paying wouldn't give him good services and hired this fly-by-night shyster who basically billed him until he ran out of money and filed one brief and something that was barely recognizable in, in English and certainly didn't make any real arguments and then disappeared once the money was gone and he was you know back to the public defender who was was quite good actually so it was kind of a great example of the was, was information this person licensed? uh i believe he had passed the yeah i mean he passed the bar and was a member of the bar but it was very bad yeah but you know i mean so of course the client was using as a proxy like how much he was paying and yeah, i think the assumption proxy. was the the more that i pay the better service i'm gonna get right yeah, no, it's not a good proxy. Not a good proxy. Yeah. Um, so the you know so so here, you know, oftentimes you'll see that the highest quality services you may be able to get in a particular jurisdiction are available for free. Uh, so a public defender, you know, generally public defenders' offices, unless they're I mean, they they they're they are overtaxed, overstressed, uh, they need more resources. We should appropriate more funds to them. But on the whole. You know, my my sort of sense about public defender offices is that they're generally pretty well run and mm -hmm. they're experienced and the people who work there care about their clients. And you know, mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine any decent public defender's office where people are practicing together in a group. I can't imagine them tolerating someone in their midst who was essentially just betraying the, their clients. Right, right. But of course, the clients don't know that because in most cases, this is their first encounter with the legal system. And even if they've had multiple encounters, they may not have a basis to distinguish between competent and incompetent oh, yeah. uh, legal services. Yeah. So the hard thing for so many people that go through the, the legal system or need legal services is that they're often one-shot players in a repeat player environment. So you have you know, people that have a legal problem, uh, you know, whether they need you know, immigration law services, criminal law services, um, you know, sometimes securities law services, where they have to go through these, these lawyers who are repeat players in this world, but they themselves are only one-time players. Uh, so unless, unless they're going to you – know, they, they don't tend to get uh, much more sophisticated about how they acquire and, and pay for use legal services – with a one-shot interaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't expect so, that. Yeah, so, so in, you, in the paper, you talk about a bunch of kind of existing market mechanisms that lawyers in particular use. It seems to communicate information to somewhat more cons sophisticated consumers about the quality of services. And like one I thought was really intriguing was to think about like the law firm as actually a proxy or means of communicating information about about quality but also about like policing quality as well oh absolutely and this is this is something i i saw in practice uh you know my firm uh was was very insistent about ethics uh because you know they viewed the firm's reputation as one of the most critical assets of the firm and no, under, under no circumstances did they want you doing anything that would imperil the firm's uh, reputation. The, you know, so the, the, the this this insight around firms it really comes from um, the late great uh, Larry Ribstein, uh, patron saint of unincorporated business associations. Uh, mm -hmm. But but he he also wrote about professional responsibility issues and 
wrote uh, about this issue. And the idea was that if you're practicing in a law firm, then all members of the law firm have an incentive to sort of police each other's conduct because the last thing you want is to have your organization be known as one that is not so good. You know, if, if you, you know, think about it, just this, is, this makes intuitive sense that you know, if you're associated with an organization that has a bad reputation, that's going to hurt your ability to get other work. There, there was a recent news story um, about the Theranos uh, debacle. Uh, mm. And uh, it's, it's, it's turned out that a lot of the higher level executives or other people who work there are having a hard time finding work. Uh, and that's probably because the, the reputation of Theranos as this um, hoax uh, or, <laughs> um, you know, sort of, you know, you know, producing false medical information. So Theranos' <laughs> negative reputation problems yeah. may be, you know, coming, you know, over and hurting their ability to move in the market. You know, same, you know, just imagine if you're a high-level executive at Bernie Madoff's uh, operation, <laughs> you know, you're, you're probably, you know, you're probably not going to feature that person on the on the pitch book when you're looking for new business. Right. Uh, so, you, know, you should you should trust us. We have lots of experience. For example, uh, you know Brian over here used to work for Bernie Madoff, uh, who was yeah, a leader right. in the industry. Yeah. The, the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. That's yeah. got to count for something, right? That's a big win. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what was what was interesting to me about that observation is that it's like. The law firm seems like a response to the legal profession's version of the lemon problem, and yet it and yet it solves the problem in a way that allows the attorneys to internalize the bulk of the surplus. And what I thought was really interesting about your paper is that you know it seems like it's really subtly focused at shifting the benefit from or solving the problem in a way that allows consumers to internalize more of the surplus. Oh, absolutely. And so you know, when, when we think about how to regulate a broad market, I think it has to be in the interest of the consuming public as opposed to the interest of the players who make the money in the market. You know, you, you, I, I wouldn't I, when, when it comes to whether we should, our, our regulation should tend to favor consumers of legal services or lawyers, you know, my, my general view is is that on balance, if it's not really in clients' interest, we maybe we shouldn't make that rule. Oh, ben, I f I fear you are a traitor to our cartel. It, you know, this this cartel point is you know it, it, it's well taken. Uh, a lot of times, you know, professional services organizations or you know all, all it really means to be a cartel is you know or cartel like behavior is that you're you're acting in a way that promotes, you know, the interests of that group over the interest of the public. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's a real risk here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the hard thing so, is you, it's tough sometimes to distinguish between, you know, things that are done just for the cartel's benefit or things that are done uh, for the public's benefit mm -hmm. or, or, you know, or there may be wars within the cartel uh, around, you know, if, if particular rules benefit, you know, some factions, they may want them to go into play um, or, you know, you want to put them into place, not because they really benefit the public, but because they, you know, benefit certain subsets of the cartel. Right. And, and has that, has that 
like structural problem do you see that playing out in the regulation of lawyers as we currently see it so right now i i don't know it's hard for me to think of particular rules when we think about lawyer regulation that are really designed to focus on the interests of particular subsets of the lawyer population over others and this, this may be because you know so many lawyers practice in, in solo firm environments or small you know small firm environments most lawyers are you know either solos or you know work in small firms and so you know it, it's but at the same time you know big firms have an outsized influence on um, the ABA and rulemaking processes they have more resources they're able to you know do more attend more conferences tend to make more money um, so so when I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about how particular groups may benefit over other groups within a, within a self-regulating profession, uh, I, I tend to think about uh, the structure at the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, where mm. you know the way the way they're set up uh, is you know partly they have they have representatives on their board that are supposed to represent the public uh, that are appointed by the board. Uh, then you also have seats that are elected by large firms, mid-sized firms, small firms. And the reason they're structured that way is around a fear that you know if they if they didn't preserve particular seats for small firms, then big firms might use their you know their their position within you know Fenra to push through rules ostensibly in the name of investor protection that would really just drive costs up for their small firm competitors and drive them out of business. Right, right. Well, that seems like a nice transition to talk about the kind of the proposed new or additional way of solving some of those problems that you have, which is, which is in a sense kind of drawn from how we think about regulation and disclosure in the financial industry. Oh, absolutely. And so, so with, in the securities markets, the, you know, one of the big problems around public companies is you know, imagine you're an investor and you're trying to figure out, uh, is this a good company? Is this a bad company? What you need is information to be able to make a decision. Do you want to buy this stock? Do you want to sell it? And if you have to go out and figure all that information out on your own, it's going to be very costly. It's going to reduce your ability to invest. Plus, socially, it's going to be incredibly costly if every investor that wants to do this has to go and do all this legwork on their own too. So instead of making everyone have to go figure out all this information on their own somehow, you, you make the company that is you know, publicly traded produce information about itself on a regular basis. And the idea is once that information is released, you know, people can then you know, sort of make their decision about whether they want to invest in this particular company or if they want to sell their stock. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea here is you want to reduce that information asymmetry. We, we do something like this for financial advisors or people who call themselves financial advisors that are that are registered as stockbrokers right now and for registered investment advisors. So FINRA has uh, what you call it's, it's uh, the broker check service. So if you if you don't if you have a financial advisor and you haven't done this, this is you know, this is probably worth the entire podcast. Someone is a financial mm -hmm. advisor and they're giving you advice about securities. What you should do is just Google broker check, find the broker check website, plug their name in. If their name does not show up. Check it again. Maybe you misspelled it. But if the name really doesn't show up and they're not in that database, then they're not licensed to sell, sell securities, and it's probably a fraud. 
Um, mm. But, you know, there are other things, you know, on the other hand, you know, you, you plug their name in and there are no red flags. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's they're never going to cheat you, but your, your odds are much better. And if you, you plug mm. their name in and you see that they've been, um, you know, they've had arbitrations and regulatory complaints and all these other problems, you know, maybe you want to be a little more careful. Uh, and the, the hard thing is most people don't know that this exists. And so, you know, the, the argument is sort of um, you, you should be able to protect yourself uh, by using these resources. But the problem is, even though this information is, in a sense, posted somewhere, people don't know they need to go look it up. Right. Which really emphasizes just how low information most consumers really are. Oh, absolutely. And it, it, when, you, when you look at financial information in particular, most you know, the, the huge swaths of the American public across all you know, educational levels are functionally financially illiterate. You know, this is you know people with PhDs, people with you know JDs. You know, the you know, the basic concepts like um, you know compound interest, inflation, um, all of these things. There's you know, just you know people just don't know it, and you know it's, this doesn't really help them make optimal decisions. So in your paper, you suggest a sort of version of a disclosure regime for professionals that in some ways resembles the sort of disclosure regime you're talking about in the financial services area. And maybe we can just – we can focus on lawyers just because this is a, you know, a, legal, a legal podcast. Um, so, so what would that look like and how would we solve that kind of like – initial information problem of consumers not knowing where to look in the first place. So, so thinking about this, um, you imagine you've got, um, you've got an attorney uh, who's been uh, disbarred uh, for stealing client money uh, because he had a crack habit and, you know, later gets readmitted, uh, you know, gets disciplined again, uh, now, so imagine these. You just you've got this guy who's out there. He's got these bad bad facts, um, you know, tending to indicate that maybe maybe you want to be careful hiring him. Uh, and imagine you're an unsophisticated, uh, you know, ordinary person. You meet the guy. Uh, he wears a, a nice suit. Uh, he's a lawyer. Uh, he is licensed. Um, and you don't know any of this information. You don't know that there's a way to look it up. So you might hire that person to represent you. And if they go on and they do substandard legal work, uh, you may not even figure it out because you have a hard time evaluating the quality of the legal work. And so, so the, the, the key thing is, you know, if this is something that a customer would or, or a client would want to know, why do we just post it out there and then blame clients for not finding it? Instead of switching from posting to pushing to say, you know, when you start out with the representation, you're, you're just going to have to hand the client these disclosures. You have to make some information available uh, or push it to them. And that way they actually get the information that we think is important that, that clients – we wouldn't post this stuff. We didn't think it was important for people to know or that they should probably take it into account. But right now there's nothing like that. 
Yeah. So what kind of information do you think should be disclosed and pushed to clients and why? I mean, is there information that's currently not disclosed that clients ought to have? And, you know, are there things we should be worried about or concerned about in sort of making the decision about what to include? This is the hard part, and it's very hard to identify, you know, really the right piece of information to include. What, what you don't want to do is skew client decisions by pushing information to them that has no predictive value or isn't useful. You know, for example, some sets, some subsets of law practice, you, you may attract a lot of customer complaints. Um, you know, say, imagine you're a criminal defense lawyer, <laughs> you lose a case, you know, it maybe, maybe is, you know, the, the client was convicted of murder and the evidence was a blood trail leading directly from the victim to the client. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's going to, it's, that's a tough draw. You're going to have a hard time yeah. defending that case. And, uh, you know, if the client sues you or, or complains about you afterward because you lost the case, um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that future clients or that, that your practice was in any way deficient. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. if, so it, you know, it, what, what, what you want to know for a, you know, a practice area is, you know, are these sorts of you know, pieces of information predictive? Um, if, you know, if, if lawyers that, that have complaints tend to have worse outcomes for clients, then you know, maybe you want to know that. Uh, so, so setting, you're just sort of circling in on the optimal pieces of data to disclose. This is, this is a really challenging thing. It's like, what do you, what do you, what do you push? Uh, so some things might be useful, um, you know, just broadly, you sort of presume that they would be useful. Uh, one of them would be whether or not the person has insurance. Um, mm. You would think that insurance companies are sophisticated about pricing risk. <laughs> and, you know, if, you, know, if you, you sort of have a preference for somebody with insurance over someone without insurance, if you disclose that information, then when you're looking to hire someone, maybe you prefer to hire someone that's insured. Mm -hmm. So win rates could be another example, uh, you know, in areas where... You, you look to see, you know, if the, if the, you wouldn't expect a lawyer to win all their cases. You can't expect that. Um, but you also wouldn't expect them to lose them all either. And if they're, if they're losing, if they do an enormous number of cases and they lose almost all of them, uh, then maybe that tells you something. But, but mm. even here, defining what is a win and what is a loss is, is hard because it may be that you lost on the liability portion, but, you know, the damages award against your client was quite small. Uh, and so mm -hmm. it's really a win. So, so figuring out whether it's, it's tough to draw really bright lines around what are, even what are wins and losses in legal practice. So figuring out exactly what to disclose is challenging. One, one thing that might be useful would be uh, missed deadlines. Uh, if you have someone who has a history of just not filing papers on time without getting an extension. Right, because there's no reason not to do that. In theory, no. I mean, you, you, you would – you just have to assume that there's – I mean, it's, it's possible that, you know, maybe you were going to file this paper, uh, you know, on time, but then a meteorite fell out of the sky and knocked you unconscious, uh, and you were unable to do that. But the odds of that happening are pretty, pretty low. I mean, the blameless deadline miss, it's rare. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you used the metaphor of the prospectus. And, and and I gotta say, like as a you know a former like Wall Street lawyer, um, 
you know, when I hear prospectus, I think something uh, it's going to be really hard to understand. So like, so like, how should we think about that in relation to consumers who are already struggling to understand the nature of the services that they want to purchase and how to evaluate their quality? A prospectus model, uh, you know, the, the idea behind a prospectus is that you, you give, you know, the material information or a lot of the material information investors would want to know. When you're, when you're looking at these kinds of markets, there's, there's also a sort of a, a danger around link that if you give people too much information, then they may, you know, so, if, so if you think about it, you know, somebody hands you a stack of, you know, 40 pages, 50 pages, you may not want to read it. It, it, you know, it's just, it just, you just look at it. And it's like, ugh, that's a lot of stuff there. And if it's, if it's dry and not exciting to read, you know, then that model for the prospectus may not work. Or something, something short, um, you know, something that is limited to, you know, a page or two maybe would, you know, with just some key facts uh, might be useful. You know, one thing, um, one thing that uh, is sort of interesting is. Uh, and this is actually, you know, now that I think more about it, this is an example of where uh, the, the ethics rules may reflect, or the ethics rules for attorneys may reflect um, the relative power of different practice models. Uh, so if you're if you're if you're doing a contingency fee uh, arrangement, you generally have to get that confirmed in writing before you um, before so so you before you start the representation, so you can actually. You know, collect on the contingency fee. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, if you are doing an hourly rate, it says that you you sh you, you need to communicate your hourly rate, and it says preferably in writing. This is the ABA model <laughs> rule. It says preferably in writing. Uh -huh. which, you know, it's sort of you know useful guidance that it, you should write it down. Um, but, you know, you don't want to have to. So. Yeah. So you know, I think about a professional prospectus, or you know, what you know, one of the things that would be most salient is how much are you going to cost? What do you cost mm. on an hourly basis? What is that? What does that compare to for this jurisdiction? So, so if you're you know, the other another piece of information that's probably really useful is benchmark information. So if you're mm. you're saying, hey, I'm five hundred dollars an hour, and the average lawyer in that jurisdiction is two hundred bucks an hour, then you know, maybe you know, sort of this alerts the consumer that the relative cost of the services they're seeking to, you know, to pay for, or the, you know, the, the lawyer they're looking at is just more expensive. Mm -hmm. But, but mm -hmm. you know, without that information, you know, I go to the, I go to the, you know, the dealership to get my car fixed, and they tell me it's going to cost this amount to replace a transmission valve. The process of collecting that information uh, about what the average cost of something like this is is, is really burdensome. Right. Right. And so, my time. yeah, and so making the information available to consumers in a more convenient way where they can sort of process that without having to do all the legwork could increase, at least on the margins, uh, the ability of consumers to sort of seek out higher quality representation. That's the, that's, that's the, the key to the idea. So, so the, the idea is sort of we – we have these systems for policing professional competence, you know, with licensing and occupational licensing and the oversight of state regulatory bodies that sort of watch us. But market forces don't play as much of a role in policing quality as they probably could, mm. you know, in part because the, the, for market forces to be effective, people need to actually be able to discriminate on the basis of quality. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge. Yeah. So I wonder, like, what response or responses would you accept uh, expect from professional organizations and their members? And I mean, is there a concern that perhaps the reason market forces aren't working is because professions like it that way? So on on that front, uh, you know, it's it's going to be difficult probably to to raise. Imagine you've got a, a meeting of the state bar, and um, you're going to put in place a a new system or a new rule that requires you to hand unflattering information about yourself to your clients at the beginning of the relationship. Uh, can't imagine that you're going to have a large consistent, a large constituency to support the idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to be particularly popular. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know, don't we as a profession have a, you know, self-imposed duty to provide that kind of information to potential clients so they can adequately be prepared to evaluate the quality of the services we're likely to provide, for example? Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, in, in the paper, I, I went into some of the research in the, on the medical side, and mm-hmm. I, I think there are some cases now where you know, let's say a surgeon is really excited to try a new procedure and they've never done this procedure before, but they're excited to try it and they want to take their scalpel out and they want to try it on you. Uh, so if, you know, if you're going to be their guinea pig uh, or their, their first uh, you know, run through of this kind of thing, um, it, it may not, you may not be able to say that there was truly informed consent to the procedure unless the person knew uh, mm. that they were doing this for the first time. So, yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. So, 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 Ben, you know, in, in closing, I, I wonder if you could like, like, reflect a little more on the potential for implementation of this idea, either in kind of the robust form that you outline in the paper, or, you know, maybe in like more baby steps forms, like how might this work? How might we accomplish this better? And is there the possibility of like, even like a kind of a third party model of doing this? Like, I mean, is there a way that it could be like aggregated and disseminated even without the kind of profession's consent or involvement? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So lawyers practicing before uh, administrative agencies, um, you know, sometimes they have to you know, register. They have uh, you know, a, a number that's associated with them. Uh, and if that agency decided to you know, release statistics about the lawyers practicing in front of it, um, you know, that would just put the information out in the public domain and make it you know, easy for people uh, to make decisions using that information. So, so one, uh, one, one interesting thing about this is that a lot of times the information is already public record because it's information that's in you know, a public court process. And so if you just release that information in a different format, like if courts decided to do it or administrative courts decided to do it, it could you know, really reveal a lot of information about relative practice rates. Or relative, you know, relative, you know, what what happens with you know different attorneys in different uh, places. One, well, one one area, you know, think about. Uh, there was a New York Times article a little while back 
uh, about uh, a law firm in New York uh, where uh, the firm had brought somewhere between, I think it was roughly a thousand uh, asylum claims over a 10 year period. And uh, they won two of them. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and so, you know, in that, so here I want to, I want to be very uh, clear uh, that most immigration lawyers are great. Uh, if you are going to go to an immigration court or you're, you're having anything like that, you should, your, your outcomes overall are much better if you have uh, a lawyer, if you want a lawyer. Um, but lawyers are not, I, lawyers are not commodities in that, you know, the, the, there's asymmetric skill. Uh, and so if you, if you, if you were looking at, you know, you, you, you have an asylum claim or you, you want asylum and you got to go in, you want to pick a representative to help you through that process who is going to be able, you know, sort of position you as best as best as you could. And so you, you might not want to pick the law firm that has uh, a record of uh, 998 losses uh, to two wins. Uh, you don't want to shop around. And so, the, you know, as as I say this, you know that that you know that that's that example is you know it's kind of extreme. That most you know most rates are not quite like that. But the other the other things is you know it's, it's also the statistics are also very hard uh, to apply here because you have you know, just you know, if you're thinking about the immigration court system, uh, it's it's basically roulette uh, when you go in depending on which judge you get. Win rates vary dramatically depending on which judge you have. So you'd have to control for that mm -hmm. and. You know the, the the hard thing is you know it, it's it's just really you know very difficult to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, very true. And you know, it it just does seem like it would be so. There's just a lot of potential there to help people achieve better outcomes right. in circumstances where, you know, there's no reason for them to be in the dark like that. No. Uh, and there's not a, uh, it's it's you know so the the challenge to the idea and and this is I think a real challenge is that if you start revealing information about lawyer win rates in particular kinds of cases, lawyers are smart. Um, we are strategic creatures, and we may change what we do in response to these sorts of disclosures. And so if you're if you want to make money and you want a good win rate to make sure you make money, you may only take easy cases uh, or you may transfer you know, any case that gets difficult to somebody else. Uh, right. And that's not necessarily going to help people. It's not going to, you know, that's not really good. But the, the, the ultimate question that the article is asking is, is sort of, we've got, we got a world right now where people you know the the least sophisticated people are at the biggest disadvantage, and they have a very hard time identifying who a good practitioner is. And so, if do we want a world with you know problems that come from too much information and too much strategic behavior, or do we want a world uh, where you know people have too little information and can't act to protect themselves? Mm, yeah. It's like don't let the best be the enemy of the good, as yeah. it were. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's not, as, you know, this, this, you know, this idea, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's an idea to maybe try to improve how the market functions here, 
but a market model may not be the best model for providing legal services in a lot of contexts. Because, you know, maybe, maybe it's just evil to say that only people who, I mean, we, we recognize this in criminal defense, like only people who can afford it uh, can, have, can have a lawyer. We don't, we don't do that for people who face criminal charges. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, if, if we're not willing uh, to provide uh, these kinds of services publicly, then the market is all we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, Ben, thanks so much. It's been great talking about the paper, and I hope we do see more information about the quality of legal services. Because if anything, you know, teaching professional responsibility is a daily reminder of the failings of the profession. It, you know, it, it's the the profession. I think is only going to benefit. Uh, I think from from focusing on these issues, talking about them, and you know, trying to, to tilt it uh, more in the direction of you know, protecting the public. Attorney Ed Denton, what's your IQ? 135. And your EQ? EQ. Your economics quotient. Economics? I never had time to get into it. Lots of people, even people you'd ordinarily consider smart, have EQs that could stand improvement. How about yours? The place to start is your local library. It's full of information on the American economic system and your part in it. The American economic system. We should all learn more about it. A public service message of the Advertising Council and U.S. Department of Commerce, presented by this station.